you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus 16. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Then they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the saints of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. For he hears your grumblings against the Lord, and what are we that you grumble against us? Verse 8, Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening, and bread to the full in the morning. For the Lord hears your grumblings, which you grumble against him. And what are we? Your grumblings are not against us, but against the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word, and again, just the opportunity to come together with brothers and sisters and, uh, and read and, and consider the things that you have revealed about yourself, uh, the ways that you have worked in the past, and that we would be encouraged in our faith for today and for tomorrow. And we just pray that our, our hearts will be open, that we would be teachable and humble and that we would acknowledge that you are the King of kings, that you are the Lord of lords, and that you are worthy of our submission, you are worthy of our worship. So we thank you for this time, and just pray that it is to your glory, and pray it's in Jesus' name, amen. So Charlie and Patsy, they got back uh, Monday morning at about 5 a.m., then they flew out to go to Japan Thursday morning at about 5 a.m. And so they are traveling the world these days and know that, know that they wish they were here. Uh, but yeah, so we just finished our first week of camp uh, and we had a great week. There were only over, not only, there were over 10 kids who stood up at the, at the end of the week and testified to putting their faith in Christ for the first time. And so we just praise the Lord for that and what He's doing and just how the kids come back every year, the ones that keep coming back and they, uh, they just look forward to it. I see them, I'll see the next group this afternoon when they come. Uh, and one of the first questions that they start asking when they see me is, are these counselors still here? My counselors from last year. Uh, and, and then next year it'll be the same kids saying the same question, the counselors that they had this year. They'll be wanting them to still be here next year. This is amazing, the impact that the Lord has on these kids through our volunteers. I really appreciate them. And just appreciate your guys praying for us as we serve this summer. And, yeah, it's just it's incredible. 
Incredible to see the Lord working. Also, I want to wish everyone a happy Father's Day to you dads out there. Uh, it is a special, special calling that the Lord has given us and a huge responsibility as well. I'm just grateful to the Lord for equipping us for all that He calls us to. And yeah, just celebrating the gift of being a father. And I get to celebrate with our four little girls yesterday. And, uh, and they are such a blessing. So I just appreciate uh, the, the joy of being a father. And that we get to live out to be a small example by the grace of God of what our Heavenly Father is like. And so appreciate all the dads and the sacrifices made and the opportunity to teach and raise up the next generation. And so may we be faithful in that. As we look at this passage uh, and we think about the Israelites coming out of the slavery under the Egyptians... I'm reminded of how often our lives, our situations that we find ourselves in don't turn out the way that we expect, that there's unexpected outcomes in so many situations. Uh, And when one year, I think I was about 10 years old, uh, we lived in Maryland, and in Maryland, we got snow every year, usually a couple inches, sometimes even up to a foot of snow. It didn't snow till January most of the time, but one year... It snowed before Christmas, and we actually had a white Christmas. And we were so excited uh, that it snowed, I think, Christmas Eve. And so we got up Christmas morning, and we opened all of our presents. And since it was a white Christmas, we knew that we had to go play in the snow, because that's what you do on a white Christmas. Uh, and so we went outside, and we, had, we lived in a neighborhood, and one of our friends had a four-wheeler, uh, and we had a, a pretty big yard. And so we hooked up an inner tube to the back of this four-wheeler because that's what you do when there's snow and you have a four-wheeler. Then you hook up a tube to the back and we took turns getting pulled around by this four-wheeler. And I was on the back, I was on this inner tube and just having the time of my life. And you know where this is going to go. It's not going to go well. And... The, the person driving the four-wheeler, you know, he's just doing all his turns and whipping me around and all this stuff. And at one point, he makes a sharp turn, and I'm just screaming with delight as I whip around this turn. Uh, and then I lose my grip, and I fall back and hit my head, and then I wake up in the hospital. I was unconscious from the time that I hit my head on the ground, that not-so-soft snow, Uh, to the time that we got to the hospital. And the thing that we thought was so exciting, the situation that was just enjoyable to all of us, didn't turn out the way that we expected. Didn't turn out the way I expected. Christmas didn't turn out the way I expected. Uh, Spending Christmas evening in the hospital room, not the way my parents expected. But uh, we often have unexpected outcomes to the situations in life. Life just doesn't go the way that we anticipate. And that's just the reality. Uh, Seldom do our plans go the way that we think they will. And frankly, God just has a way of working in ways that we don't expect. Uh, God is not limited to working according to our standards and our wisdom and our, uh, our suggestions. 
And you look throughout the Old Testament, and this is consistent, that God works in unexpected ways. If you're going to start a nation, you don't start by giving a son to a 100-year-old man. It doesn't make sense. Why would you do it that way? You would pick somebody who's young, someone who can father lots of children, instead of this couple who is way past childbearing age, a 90-year-old woman and a 100-year-old man. Why would God do it that way? But he doesn't work the way that we expect. And then once he has a son and Isaac is born, then God goes to Abraham and he says, okay, Abraham, you have your son Isaac. This is great. You've enjoyed over 10 years of life with him. Now you need to go kill him. And God doesn't work the way that we expect. We look at Isaac and he has two sons, Jacob and Esau. One is a leader. One is a man. He knows how to take care of himself. He knows how to hunt. He knows how to provide and live out in the wild. He's the firstborn son, and God goes and he says, hey, the son that you expect to be the leader, Esau? No, he's not the leader. The inheritance goes to Jacob. And God tells him that before they're even born, that the older will serve the younger, and God does not work in the way that they expect. And then Jacob has his 12 sons, and God determines to take Jacob's favorite son, Joseph, the one who is a man of integrity, the one who doesn't grumble and complain, the one who is above reproach. And God takes Joseph and says, Joseph is going to be separated from you, Jacob. You're going to think he's dead. And he sends Joseph to be a slave. We look at Joseph's life and we ask the question, does God work the way that we expect? And Joseph's life is just one unexpected thing after another. If anyone had felt the right to ask God why, you would think it's Joseph. That everything turns out completely opposite to what you would anticipate because Joseph is walking humbly with God and he's fleeing from temptation and yet at every turn... His obedience leads to more difficult circumstances. Until later on when finally he's elevated to be Pharaoh's right-hand man. But God doesn't work the way that Joseph would anticipate. The way that Jacob would anticipate. Moses, same story. When he's 40 years old, he's had his time of training and he thinks, God, this is the right time for me to be a leader. I know you've called me to deliver Israel from Egypt. And so at 40 years old, he begins to take steps in that direction. And God says, Moses, I'm not working on your timetable. We have to wait till you're 80. Once you're 80, then you're ready. Lord, that doesn't make sense. Why would you work in that way? And then when Moses does go to Pharaoh to say God has called you to let his people go, Pharaoh's response, make Israel work more. Make their labor more intensive. God, why would you call, from Moses' perspective, why would you call me to go to Pharaoh only to make your people's labor more difficult? Why would you do that? Why would you... Have me put our people in that position. And God does not work the way that Moses expects. 
We can go through David, the youngest of all of his brothers, the runt shepherd boy that isn't even brought to Samuel to be a possibility of being anointed as the next king. And God says, that's the one I want. The one that no one expects. And then he's anointed king, and yet nothing happens for 15 years. He has to wait 15 years before he actually becomes the king. And that's just the king of Judah, not even the king of all of Israel. And God is not doing things the way that David would anticipate. But David waits. And we look throughout the Old Testament, we look throughout Scripture, and we look at our own lives, and we say, Lord, I did not expect for things to go the way that they've gone. That the Lord is doing things according to His way and not our own. And yet, so often we come to Him and we say, Lord, this is what makes the most sense. This is what's most practical, most pragmatic. But He's not limited. We can go through chapter by chapter of Scripture seeing God do things in ways that we simply would not advise Him to do. In ways that we wouldn't expect Him to do based on our our own standpoint. In the Bible school, I get to teach through Joshua and Judges and Ruth to our first year students every fall. And as we go through those books, uh, at some point throughout the year, and usually when I'm going through those books, I always have a handful of students that come to me, especially when we're going through Judges, and it's just a depressing book of the Bible. Uh, As we go through Judges, and they say, they've already gone through the Pentateuch, the first five books, and they say, why doesn't... Israel get it. (laughs) They've seen the Lord provide so much. And yet, they they go through Joshua. We see Him provide the land in miraculous ways. He's throwing rocks from heaven to defeat their enemies. And then we get to Judges, and they turn away. One generation after Joshua. And the Israelites are walking away. Why are they so slow to remember who God is and what He's done? What is wrong with these people? Uh, and, and I always have students coming to me and telling me that, asking me that question. And it just seems so obvious uh, that God's going to take care of them. And yet, they forget. They don't believe. The Israelites in the book of Judges have a rich testimony of God's faithfulness in the past. They can hear stories from their parents and their grandparents. They can look back at Scripture and they can see how the Lord has provided every step of the way. And God doesn't work the way that they expect, but God is always the one who is faithful in providing for them. And so we come to Numbers 16, not Numbers, Exodus 16. And this is what we find. The Israelites have come out of slavery And they cross the Red Sea, and right after they get across, it doesn't take them long to realize that things are not going to be the way that they expected when they get set free from Egypt. It doesn't go the way that they think it's going to go. And we're tempted to ask this question of why aren't they learning? They just walked through the Red Sea. They walked on dry land. They saw the ten plagues. They saw the miracles of God, and yet... Here they are a few days later and they're grumbling and they're complaining. Why why aren't they believing? 
what would lead them to feel so justified to unbelief? And so keep your finger there in Exodus. We're going to flip back and forth between Exodus 16 and Psalm 78. Where the psalmist is recounting the Lord's dealings with Israel during this time. So we're going to go back and forth between these two. And we ask the question, what would lead the Israelites to feel justified in their doubt? Right? Because it's clear that God has provided for them, and yet they think it reasonable for them to not believe, to question the Lord's work, the way that He's doing things. In Psalm 78, let's read verses 12 through 14. Some of the things that God has done for them. It says, He wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and He caused them to pass through, and He made the waters stand up like a heap. And then he led them with a cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire. And we see that God has given this miraculous deliverance out of Egypt. And, and we talk about these mountaintop experiences. You know, I hear people talk about it a lot with the idea of summer camps. You know, people walk away from, from a camp experience or retreat experience, even from Bible school. And they're really excited about what God's been doing in their lives, what he's been teaching them. And they're thinking, this is great. I am recommitted to the Lord and I am not going to forget these great things that he's done. And they're on fire for Christ. And it's so good. And I think, okay, for the Israelites, how much more would that be so? That they just walked through the Red Sea. They saw the waters pile up like a heap on both sides of them. And they get through that. And I would think, wow, I am... I'm committed at this point. You know, I've seen some pretty crazy things that God has done. Surely this group of people has to be so sold out at this point in their minds to the Lord that they're convinced, okay, it doesn't matter what's coming next, I'm in. I'm trusting the Lord. Because we have seen some incredible things. We saw the ten plagues. And yet, after seeing all of these things... After seeing the waters divided, that's not how it pans out. Back in Exodus, verse 2, says the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. This is shortly after they were set free. And they're grumbling. Even though they had just had this experience that I'm sure instilled in their hearts some level of passion and commitment to trusting God. And yet, once their circumstances were not what they expected, when God wasn't working in the way that they thought made the most sense, they crossed the Red Sea and it wasn't green pastures on the other side. Instead, it was barren desert. And now they're grumbling. First, they grumbled about water and God provided water for them. And he brought them to these seven springs, 12 springs, and in 1527. But now they don't have food. They're grumbling about the food. And what made them feel justified to grumble? I think one thing is in verse 2 it says, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And they thought, we're not grumbling against the Lord. We're grumbling against our leadership. It's these other people's fault why things are the way that they are. And so I can complain to them all day, and it's okay, because it's their fault. 
And in our discontentment, we think subconsciously, I'm not grumbling against the Lord. I'm grumbling about this other person's issues, this other person's decisions. And so it's justified. My discontentment, yeah, I've seen God work in the past, but there's this person and the decisions they're making, and that is why I'm upset. It's not the Lord. We look at the passage and we know, no, actually they're grumbling against the Lord by grumbling against Aaron and Moses. But from their perspectives, I think their grumbling seems justified because they think the issue is Moses and Aaron. That's, that's how they rationalize it. We're grumbling against Moses and Aaron. It's easier for me to grumble about a situation when I can blame a person rather than blaming God. If I can put the blame somewhere else, then I'm very quick to do that. None of us will say, God, this is all your fault. But we can look at our boss and say that. We can look at our spouse and say that. We can look at our kids and say that. Our friends, our enemies. This is your fault. This is why things are so difficult. This is why my life is not what I expected it to be. Things aren't going the way that I expected. And it's easy to blame people. We wouldn't blame God because that would be the wrong thing to do. But like the Israelites, we can say, Moses and Aaron, this is your fault. And yet... It's easy to complain about those those people and say that they are the problem, but instead the Lord calls us to look at Joseph. And Joseph, in all that he walks through, at the end of it, his brothers are standing before him and he has a chance to look at them and say, this is all your fault. Look at what you've done. How could you do this to me? How can you separate me from my father for so many years and make him think I'm dead? All the joys of being with family that I didn't get to experience because you guys were selfish and jealous and you lied. This is your fault. And Joseph doesn't do that. Instead, he steps back and he looks at the people that he could blame as being the problem and he says, this is what God was doing. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It's okay. when the the circumstances are not turning out the way that we expect, when God isn't doing things the way that we think He should, and so we turn to other people to put the blame on them, and God says, no. The blame is being put on me when you do that. Even if we don't say that. When Jesus Himself is being nailed to the cross, His cry is, Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't realize. Joseph looks at his brother and says, brothers and says, I forgive you. You didn't know what you were doing. But God did. Israel looks at Moses and Aaron and they say, this is your fault. You brought us here. There's no food. We're hungry. What are you doing? Why are we here? They blame their leadership for the difficulty that they find themselves in. And yet, we know that that's not who they're actually blaming. In reality, they're blaming God Himself. Saying that it's God's fault. Their challenge isn't against Moses and Aaron. 
their challenges against God, and we can say, don't they realize yet that God's going to take care of them? How can they be so quick to complain? They've seen the Lord's faithfulness so much in the past. They've heard the stories of God providing a child to Abram and Sarah in their old age. God working in unexpected ways. And yet they're still here to complain. In our our own lives, though, in my life, I feel immediately justified to complain about other people. That my circumstances are their fault. Counselors might feel justified to complain about a camper. Surely not, but maybe. That circumstances are this person's fault. If this person in my life would make better decisions, my life would be better. I'd be able to have more contentment, more joy, and more peace. If Moses and Aaron had made better decisions, the Israelites' lives would be better. We'd have food. That's what they're saying. Moses and Aaron, this is your fault. Where can we put the blame? But we remember, though, that God doesn't do things our way. And that's just the fact of life. The Lord does not work in the way that we expect. If you go online on Google Maps and you go to the Sinai Peninsula, it's fascinating that we can do this now in almost any country in the world. On your computer, you know, if you go to Google Maps, there's this little yellow guy in the bottom of the corner. and You can pick him up with your mouse and you can drop him at different points on, uh, on that map in your screen. So you zoom into the Sinai Peninsula and it looks all brown. And you pick up this little yellow guy and you can drop him at different places on there. And it loads a picture that somebody has taken at that exact location. Uh, And so you can see actual places at the Sinai Peninsula. And so I've done this a couple of times. You do this and you go and see what that area of the world is like. And I tell you, it is dead. There is nothing there. It looks like a miserable place to live. Like all the places I dropped this guy, there's no one living there. Uh, in the middle of the Sinai Peninsula, everyone's on the outskirts where there's water, but no one's in the middle uh, because it's just barren desert. You know, I really think it's what Canadians think Texas is like before they come. Uh, and then they show up and they're like, wow, you actually have green stuff sometimes. And, and yet it is just barren. And the Israelites, especially if they're leaving Egypt from the land of Goshen, which is very green. Uh, you know, but the Israelites, when they cross the Red Sea to go to a land of promise, and they, they show up to the Sinai Peninsula, and it is dead. There is nothing there. It's desert. It's rock. There's no green anywhere. And their first thought is, God, this is not what we were expecting. Why would you bring us here? This is not a land of promise. What are we doing? What are you doing? And so they're complaining about their thirst. In Psalm 78, going back there, as they're traveling around in the Sinai Peninsula, the story comes along of when the Lord provides water from a rock. In verse 15, in Psalm 78, Notice the imagery that he uses here. It says that he split the rocks in the wilderness 
and he gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock, and he caused waters to run down like rivers. You know, if you go through, if you look at a children's Bible, usually when they talk about this story of Moses hitting a rock, you see this little like trickle of water coming out of a rock or a little stream. And I don't think that's how it was. He uses words here that seem to communicate the idea that there is a huge amount of water coming out of these rocks. Rivers of water. As much as the ocean's depths. Obviously, it's not the ocean itself. He's exaggerating there, the ocean's depths. But his point is, there's a lot of water. There's tons of water coming out of a barren desert. Something that has no life suddenly has life coming out of it. And the difference between dead water and living water is that it's moving, it's flowing. And so here he has living water in abundance for his people when they think, God, there is nothing here for us. Why would you bring us here? He says living water. And I'm reminded of the story in, uh, in John 7 when Jesus at the last day of the feast, he stands up and he cries out and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That out of the desert, out of the barrenness, when we find ourselves feeling like we're in the wilderness, and God says, Christ says, come to me, and out of the desert of your life, I can provide rivers of living water. Not a trickle but in overabundance, more than you need, more than you know what to do with. He says, this is what I promise to provide. But you have to come and trust me. Believe that I will. He doesn't work in the ways that they expect. And yet, despite God's providing rivers in a barren desert, still we doubt in Psalm 78, he goes on to verse 17, after he had done this amazing thing for them, yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God and they said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rocks so that waters gushed out, and streams were overflowing, can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? And we, you know, we hear people ask, why doesn't Israel get it? Why are they so slow to learn and realize that God's going to take care of them? And as we walk through our life with Christ, we realize very quickly, when am I going to get it? Why am I so slow to realize that God is faithful and He's going to take care of me? Why am I so quick to doubt and wonder, Lord, are you going to bring me through this? And we realize that we can relate to Israel a lot and that we often ask this same question. Can God really prepare a table in the wilderness? In my life. When things are not going the way that I expect, can God actually prepare a feast in a desert? That seems far-fetched. God, you've brought me to a situation that is not ideal. 
that I assumed you wouldn't bring me to because you love me and you care about me and you wouldn't bring me to something so difficult. And we ask ourselves the question, will God really provide a feast in the desert? And we know the right answer, but our hearts don't always believe what is right. We know the truth. We know He will. But in the moment, it's easy to complain. It's easy to doubt, to question. God, what are you doing? It wasn't supposed to be like this. And so we wake up some days feeling like we're in the wilderness. We say, God, thanks for getting me out of Egypt. Thanks for salvation. Thanks for the blood of Christ. That's really great. But the situation I'm in now is still really hard. What are you doing? Why would you do this? The wilderness of loneliness, feeling alone, Sometimes marriage can feel like a wilderness. Sometimes singleness feels like a wilderness. Parenting can. I love being a father, but there's, it's hard. There's plenty of times where I think, why, Lord? This is so difficult. You picked the wrong guy to be a father. I don't know what I'm doing. Our jobs can feel like a wilderness. Our family, extended family, friends, conflict that comes up. And we wonder, God, can you really prepare a feast in this? You really think that I can have joy in the midst of this? That I can give thanks in all things? And so when Moses hears his complaint about food back in Exodus 16, when he hears his complaint and they say, will God provide us with food? Did, he, did you guys bring us out here to die? And I just picture, you know, I wonder for Moses what kind of ways, if he imagined, I wonder how God's going to provide food. What is God going to do to provide food in this desert place? Because Moses is looking around and thinking, yeah, there's no food here. There's nothing. I don't don't know what's going to happen. I think Moses has faith. He believes God's going to do it, but... If he's imagining the options and the way that God says he's going to provide food in verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. I will rain bread from heaven. Could you imagine going to a people, a million people who are all really angry because they're hungry, and you go to them and say, Hey, guys, don't worry, it's going to rain bread tomorrow and then it'll be okay. Moses you really are the wrong guy for this job. You have no idea what you're talking about. Bread doesn't rain. And God says, the way that I'm going to provide food is by bringing food from heaven. That's how. It's going to come from the sky. You don't have to do anything for it. It's literally going to fall at your feet. And all you have to do is pick it up each day and enjoy it. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to plant any seeds to grow grain. You don't have to harvest anything. All you do is pick it up and you can start eating. You can cook it if you want. You can prepare it different ways. But the food is at your feet. It's going to come from heaven. And then he goes on in 
verses 6 and 7. And he says, So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. For he hears your grumblings against the Lord, and what are we that you grumble against us? And they mention these two things of why God, what God is going to teach them through this. He says, first, in verse, five, in verse 6, you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Don't they know that? Yeah, they probably do, but they forgot it, obviously, because they're grumbling again and wondering if God's going to keep taking care of them. He says, but we're going to remind you, you're going to be reminded again by what God is going to do, that he is the one who saved you. He is your Savior. So God's going to provide in order that once again you can believe that God is your Savior. And the second thing, verse 6, at evening, so he'll provide food in the mornings and in the evenings, and at evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. Uh, Verse 7, sorry. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. So he says, God wants you to know that he's your Savior. And God wants you to know that he's glorious. The reason why God's going to provide a feast for you in the wilderness so that you can believe and so that you can worship. So you can believe who God is and you can respond as you see the glory of God. That you'll worship him. That's why he provides the feast. It's not just so that you get through it. It's so that you get through it the right way. Believing and worshiping. Through this feast, you'll know that the Lord's brought you out and you'll see that he's, he's glorious. So God provides a feast for them in the wilderness. He provides a feast so his people will know that he's their savior and that he's wonderful, that he's worthy of all praise. I shared a story in camp this past week. That's an embarrassing story. That's okay. Uh, when I was about eight years old, I was, my family lived in Maryland and then my dad's family lived in South Carolina. And we would make road trips. This summer stuff, already laughing. Uh, we would make road trips uh, to South Carolina to visit my grandparents. And one time, as we were making this, this trip, uh, it's about a 10, 11 hour drive. And my dad's driving is usually nine hours. And so we're on the way down, traveling to South Carolina. And right before we leave, I can tell I'm starting to get sick. Like my throat's getting really sore. I'm starting to cough a little bit. And so over the next several hours, I'm coughing more and more and just feeling miserable. And there's about an hour and a half left in the trip, and I'm just complaining a lot to my parents about how bad I feel. And so finally, I don't know if they just already had, had the cough drop or if they stopped at the gas station and bought it, I don't remember. But they give me a cough drop of Robitussin. And if you ever had Robitussin, it is terrible. I don't know why it exists, but it's there. And uh, so they give me this cough drop of Robitussin. I don't think I'd ever taken a cough drop in my life. And so I take this cough drop, there's about an hour and a half left of the trip, and I put it in my mouth, and about 15 minutes later, I notice something really strange. My mouth is starting to get filled up with fluid. This is weird, it tastes really, really bad. And 30 minutes go by, and my mouth has more liquid in it, because I don't know what to do with the cough drop. I didn't realize you were supposed to swallow it. 
And so it's filling up, and the cough drop is dissolving and dissolving. And we're getting to my grandparents' house, and we're pulling in. And as we're, the last five minutes, my dad looks in his rearview mirror, and he sees me. He says, John, how are you doing? I'm back there. <laughs> and my cheeks are full of this cough syrup, and I have cough syrup dripping down my chin, because it's just, I didn't know what to do with it all. And so we pull up into my grandparents' house, and as soon as we park, I throw open the van door, and I spit it all out, and I'm thinking, Dad, what were you thinking giving that to me? That was terrible. That was the worst thing I've ever tasted in my life. My dad says, son, what are you thinking? Why didn't you swallow it? Because it tastes bad. But that's what's going to make you better. That's the medicine. That's how it works. But I had something, and I didn't really know what to do with it. Something that was supposed to give me life, supposed to heal me, supposed to make me feel better. And I put it in my mouth, and I had no idea what to do, what my response should be. I misunderstood. And as we're tempted to doubt and wonder whether or not God will provide a feast for us in the wilderness, we have to realize that He already has. But sometimes we look at the feast that God has provided and we say, Lord, I don't know what to do with that. Or we think that's not enough. There has to be something more. That's too simple. Flipping your Bibles to John chapter 6. The Israelites are wanting to make Jesus their king in John 6. It's ironic. This is the most popular point in Jesus' ministry. He has more people ready to follow him than any other time. He feeds the 5,000, 10,000 plus people probably. And afterwards they think, this guy can give us free food, welfare checks. Let's make him our king. We don't have to work. This is good. This guy can do anything. He can calm storms. He's a great guy to have as our king. Let's, let's make him king. And so Jesus refuses. He sends his disciples across the Sea of Galilee. He disperses the crowds, and then afterwards he prays to the Father, and then he walks on the water to the disciples. Peter walks on the water out to Jesus. He starts to sing. Jesus saves him, and they get to the other side, and the crowds wake up the next morning, and they think, where is Jesus? We want to go see this guy again. We want to see more miracles. We want him to give us more free food. This is, we like this guy. We want to go find him. So they finally find Jesus in John 6, uh, and... When they find him, he tells them in verse 29 that they have to believe in him. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And then they respond to verse 30. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Jesus, you want us to believe in you? Okay, prove it. Show us a sign. Yeah, we saw you feed 10,000 people with a little bread and fish. Apparently, they don't think that's good enough. Give us a sign. Verse 31, they say, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And they attribute that to Moses. And they say, Jesus, this was Moses' sign. This is why Israel followed Moses. They got bread out of heaven. 
And they ate it and they were satisfied. Jesus, you give us a sign and then we'll follow you. Give us a sign and then we'll know that the things that you're telling us about yourself are the right medicine. That you are actually the answer to, to heal us. And Jesus says in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. They said, give us bread out of heaven. That's the sign that the Israelites had in the Old Testament to know that Moses was sent by God. What's your sign? And Jesus says, I'm not going to send you bread from heaven. I myself am the bread. You want a feast in the wilderness. He says, I'm the feast. Come to me. Come to me and believe that I will satisfy your soul. When you're discontent and we want to point to other people and say, you're the problem. Jesus says, I can provide a feast for you in the wilderness. Come to me. I am the bread of life. In verse 50, he says, This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Yet so often we don't know what to do with Christ. Jesus, we know, is supposed to be our life, but it's like that cough drop in my mouth and I say, Okay, Jesus, I know you're supposed to be the one to to be my life, but I don't know what to do. What do I do with Christ? I know the right answer, and yet still, in my situation, in my circumstance, things seem desperate. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2. We see that as we are tempted to complain, to grumble, to point fingers at whatever it may be that we think we can blame for our circumstances and our challenges in our day-to-day lives. We come to Christ, and as we come to Jesus, we do stop complaining because He is the bread of life, because He is the living water. In Philippians 2, verse 14, it says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. All right, that's pretty straightforward. How is it that we do that? He says, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. But still the question, how is it that I stop grumbling and complaining? Verse 16, holding fast the word of life. I think that's it. It's pretty simple. The bread from heaven has fallen down on our feet and he says, you don't have to work for it. All you have to do is enjoy it. Come to the living water. Come to the manna from heaven. Come to the bread of life and feast. Even if all around you is desert and it's barren and you think Jesus is not what I was expecting in a relationship with you and walking with you, In five years, in ten years, in twenty years, this is not where I thought I would be when you brought me out of Egypt. He says, it doesn't matter where you are. I provided a feast for you in the wilderness. No matter where you are. Because Christ himself is life. 
And so we hold fast the word of life. And when that happens, verse 17, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. I think Joseph was coming to God and he was feasting as he trusted him. God, you are life. I'm coming to you. And then he can look at his brothers and say, I'm pouring myself out to you as a drink offering. I'm pouring myself out to you because I'm already satisfied. It's not the way that you relate to me that brings me life. It's the way that I come to Christ and Christ has made himself available to me that gives me life. Jesus is my life. So it's not the situations that I'm walking through that determine whether or not I'm feasting. And so as, you know, summer for us is just a very full time of the year. Uh, it's, it's so busy. And it's so good. You know, we get to see the Lord working in kids' lives. I get to see the Lord uh, working in the lives of our summer volunteers. And they testify every week of how he sustains them. And, and over the years, it's just so easy to see that the Lord really is enough. That Jesus really is the feast in the desert. That he's the bread of life. And that we don't need more. So oftentimes it's just that we don't know, but we want there to be more. We think there should be. It's too simple to just walk out and look to Jesus. There needs to be more. But he says there isn't. Only in me is there life. So there's something I've been reminded of as we get into summer. And I just love the, the picture here and how easy it is, too, to relate to Israel and say, God, this is not the way I thought things would go. And yet God says, believe that I can provide for you a table in the desert. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again just for your provision that you have sent bread from heaven that you have provided life in your son Jesus. And I pray that we would come, that we would this week, this day, continue to come back to Christ and know that you, the one who is in us, is all that we need for life and godliness. There's nothing more to add. There's nothing more that heaven can give. But Christ himself is enough. So we thank you, and thank you that the gospel is simple, uh, that the things that we need to hear are not complex, but they are that which children understand and grab hold of. And I pray that we would have a childlike faith, uh, that the, the people in our lives and the situations that we want to blame for our challenging circumstances, that we would lay those aside, and we would step back and we would come, come back to the bread of life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.